0: Receipts live show at Tudum.com slash W-H-T-R. That's Tudum, T-U-D-U-M dot com slash W-H-T-R. Tickets are limited. If you can't make it to the show, we still want to hear your beautiful voice. Leave us a message at speakpipe.com slash we have the receipts. You may even hear your own voice on the show. Grab a ticket at com slash W-H-T-R. And we'll see you on May
1: 4th in Los Angeles. Bye, cashiers. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast for Netflix original true crime stories. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, your host. Each episode, we take a close up look at a true crime narrative, documentary, or series, and I talk to the people who made them, diving deep into the backstories and getting answers to questions raised by what we just watched. Today, we're discussing The Ripper, and I interview the docu-series co-directors Jesse Vile and Elena Wood. A note to listeners, this episode contains spoilers, so make sure to watch the entire series, The Ripper, and then listen on to this podcast. It was the late 1970s. A serial killer known as the Yorkshire Ripper cast a dark shadow over the lives of women across England. Over a span of five years, 13 women were killed and the police seemed incapable of catching the murderer. No one felt safe and every man was a suspect.
2: Anyone was at risk. This murder changed everything.
0: The anger was now a boiling pot.
2: Five years is too long. If they haven't caught him yet, I don't think they ever
0: will. He had successfully hoodwinked an entire police force.
2: The police were actually excluding evidence.
0: You cannot conceive of what it was like. I'm double I thought they will never catch him. Never. Ever. He controlled
1: us all. He was the last person in the world that you suspected. Jesse Vile, welcome to You Can't Make This Up.
0: Thanks for having me, it's um, really cool to be here.
1: You have a really interesting background as a filmmaker. Can you just tell me a little bit about that and also what led you to make this project?
0: Sure, um, well back in, uh, it was about 2010. Well, I used to actually produce a film festival over here called Raindance Dance uh, in London. And it just from like 2006 for a few years, And I mean, I went to film school, I studied film, and I sort of got bored of um, kind of exhibiting everyone else's film. So I I was like, you know, I want to make my own film. Uh, What am I doing? So I started a crowdfund for this project that I had been wanting to do since I was a kid. Uh, And I ended up making a feature documentary called Jason Becker, Not Dead Yet, which did really well. I went to lots of festivals, won a few awards and sort of got my foot in the door as a filmmaker and then I started, you know, meeting production companies, uh chatting some new ideas, I got some more films made and then uh yeah, and then just you start kind of building relationships with people and they start contacting you for great projects that they have when cuz you know, finding your own project is like the most difficult thing and I remember being on mm. the festival circuit with my first film and Doing Q and As, and the first question they'd always ask me was, "So, wh- where did you find this idea?" I'm like, "Why do people keep asking me that?" And it wasn't until I went off to make my second film where I was like, "Oh, now, now I understand," because <laughs> it's damn near impossible to find an original story that hasn't been told a thousand times or isn't like being told. Uh, and that was a real kind of eye opener. So. Um, I had worked with Raw before, who are the production company behind uh, this series, The Ripper, and we've been trying for a while to find another project we could work on together again. And so when they approached me about The Ripper and we discussed the story and the approach they wanted to take, I mean, I was really excited about it and wanted to be involved immediately.
1: It really is unusual for a multi-part series about one story to have two directors do separate episodes. Now, my understanding is that you did two and that Elena did two. How did that work? That's what I'm really curious about, because I imagine, you know, you have to do continuity. You have to have some sort of the same vision. But when you separate the work that way, it's a totally different kind of process, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, that's a really great question, because, you know, normally, unless you're the Cohen brothers or, uh, <laughs> t- t- you know what I mean, or, or you know, some other set of brothers or sisters that go out and, ma- and make films together, you're attached to the hip. Uh, you you know you think with one brain I mean it was a real challenge for Ellen and I because we had both worked on series before but they were standalone films they weren't as you said like one story because this is basically one film broken down into four parts in the very beginning we sat down and we just agreed on on where we wanted the series to go our different ideas and I think It could have been an absolute disaster if we didn't have that communication, if we both weren't collaborative people. Hmm. We're the same in a lot of ways. We come from a bit of a different background. Eleanor is much more kind of observational documentary. I was a bit more retrospective stuff. And so we actually learned a lot from each other, I think. And it was so it was really rewarding uh, working together. But it was definitely a challenge. Uh, We had to discuss everything. You'd think, oh, two directors on, you know, one series, bang, you know, you could, you could finish this really quickly. It actually took longer because as one director, you can just make tons of decisions and just cross your fingers and hope the execs agree. But this, you always had to communicate every, every little thing uh, in order to move forward.
1: The way that you just described that sounds like a track team relay race (laughs) where they have to hand the baton and the most difficult part is always the handover of the baton. Like, okay, I did this part. Now I'm trusting you to do the next part. Um, That's super interesting. Speaking of collaboration and a big instance of failure to collaborate, one of the things that we see in your film is this huge amount of process that all these police departments put into this investigation in the Yorkshire Ripper case. And you see, you know, millions and millions and millions of cards, tons of notes, uh, lots of door knocking interviews. They talk about all of that. But essentially, there's a big failure in a couple of places. But one of the big ones is in the pre-computer age, not being able to, in any way, make a cohesive story or picture out of all this material. What did you learn about the lack of police cooperation or how it failed when you were putting the story together?
0: When you just look at the amount of paperwork that they were going through, and it is pre the digital age, now you can just go into a database, search a keyword, and then all these other things pop up. Back then, they did everything on paper with cards. And as they said, you know, in the series, the floor became so heavy With paperwork, they actually had to reinforce the floor with steel beams. I mean, that just gives you some indication of the sheer amount of paperwork they were dealing with. So, uh, you know, that was a major, major hurdle for them. I think you do need to empathize a little bit with them in, in terms of that. And I think that also contributed to um, this necessity to sort of grab on to any clue that came along, to grab on to anything because they were just so desperate. And also to, to use their instincts sometimes over, their, uh, the, over the evidence or, or even over their own intellect. And that's where they ran into major problems uh, because they were used to doing things in a certain way. They were used to uh, thinking about people, particularly women in a certain way. Uh, sex workers in particular. So all that clouded their judgment and it just became impossible. Uh, it, It just became impossible for them.
1: It also seemed like there were some key decisions that were made based on faulty evidence or faulty information that really hampered the investigation. The one that I remember the most is the whole thing around the Geordie accent, using that as a filter through which to eliminate suspects, including Peter Sutcliffe himself, who, of course, ended up being the Yorkshire Ripper. Mm. Can you just talk about what you maybe learned about implicit bias and, and that misinformation? I mean, it was surprising to me that it could so take over a case that so many cops were working on.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's that thing where they have an idea and then they look at all the evidence through the lens of that idea. And if it doesn't fit into that idea or that description or that concept of what they're looking for, then they just did away with it. And you, you saw that with uh, Andy Lapto when he approached his boss and said, hey, this guy, um, this guy fits the description that we've had from past attack victims. But then because he didn't have a Geordie accent, he was discredited. And that's what I was saying early on about like how they were just so desperate to cling on to anything that was concrete evidence. And that's when the tape came in with the Geordie accent. They just dug their heels in. Even when I think a lot and we, you know, we spoke to some of the police, a lot of them, they said throughout the the whole Yorkshire police, they, they knew it was crap. They knew it wasn't true that he wasn't a Geordie. Yet they were given orders and they had to follow them, and that was remarkable. And I think it's it's like those it's like that saying about gamblers. You know, when you uh, you gamble so much, even though you've lost so much, you have to keep gambling because you've already lost so much. You want to get it back.
1: So Peter Sutcliffe himself doesn't make an appearance in the documentary at all until the final episode. Why was it important to you to really hold back on telling his part of the story?
0: Well, I think. We decided pretty quickly that we didn't want to spend any time or resources trying to get Sutcliffe to take part in the series. Um, he's never really spoken before taking part in something like this. So if we did manage to get him to take part, he I think he just would have hijacked the series. It would have become almost impossible for him not to completely take over. And it would have become a completely different series. And so... Um, you know, it sort of would have become like conversations with a killer kind of thing. Yeah. And the yeah. direction and the focus of the series would have changed entirely. And so we wanted to keep him. Well, one of the reasons is we wanted to keep him to the end because he wasn't in it. But the main reason is because we wanted to tell the story in a chronological way where events unfold in present time. Because this way the audience gets to experience the story in the same way that the people lived it. And so the audience could then have some understanding of the fear and the frustration that people were feeling at the time. And also, you know, we spend the first three episodes listening to the police and the public mythologizing about this killer. You know, they're creating this boogeyman monster character, you know, even invoking the spirit of Jack the Ripper. And, you know, when he's finally caught in episode four and his identity is revealed, it's like really underwhelming. And it was a surprise Mm -hmm. to just about everyone how normal he seemed compared to the image they held of who this killer was, the image they created. And so we wanted the audience to have a sense of that as well, that, oh my God, he is just this normal guy, because that's really what the series is about. It isn't about uh, this sort of monster separate from society. It was about a society that gave birth and nurtured this monster and created this environment for this monster to not just live and breathe, but to, to get bigger and bigger and bigger.
1: One of the things that struck me, and I think the thing that's important for American viewers in particular to realize when they watch a story like this that takes place in England is that the criminal justice systems that we have in our two countries are very different. Mm. And in many ways you know, there's that saying that if you're going to get arrested you want to get arrested in England and if you, I don't know, it's a whole expression about (laughs) cooking, being arrested and something. But one of the things that surprised me, um, only because it would never happen here, is how Sutcliffe was able to change the circumstances of his incarceration after he was convicted can you just talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, first of all, I, you know, being an American myself, and how I know how hard the American penal system can be on on criminals, and it is a lot softer over here. And so, when I heard it that, you know, when I when I heard that he'd only been given. 30 years for all this. I just knew, I'm like, oh my God, my, you know, America's just going to be like, what? 30 years? You know, they should get the electric chair or something. So it is extremely, extremely different. And I think, you know, he was moved to Broadmoor in 1984 uh, from Parker's prison where he was sent. He was proven not to be insane by the jury. Uh, he was attacked in prison. Someone slashed him across the face pretty badly and he appealed to be moved to Broadmoor. Uh, He was seen by psychiatrists who agreed he was a paranoid schizophrenic, and the Home Secretary at the time, uh, Leon Britton, agreed to move him to Broadmoor under the Mental Health Act. It, It gets all really convoluted and all really bureaucratic and quite boring, to be honest, which is why we didn't really have the time to get into that in the series. We felt it was just kind of too much detail to drag the viewer down with. But Many people believe it was just another con and maybe it was a political move or maybe it was just a way to sort of um, keep him out of the press from being attacked all the time in prison.
1: So at the end of the documentary, Tracy Brown, one of the survivors, talks about how angry she was when police came to her to let her know that Sutcliffe confessed to attacking her because they had felt there was no point to charging and prosecuting him. For that, um, can you just talk a little bit about that conversation with her? What was it like to have it? What were your impressions, and how did she feel when things did turn out the way they did with him making that confession?
0: So, Tracy is a really interesting character, uh, she's a really cool lady. And when we met, we met beforehand a couple months before we started shooting with her, we had um, lunch with her. And she was just so cool about the whole thing. She was like, oh, no, it doesn't bother me. And I got over it really quickly. And I was like, wow, really? She's like, yeah, you know, it happened when I was so young that I just I dealt with it. And, you know, um, it wasn't until, you know, when we did the interview and we were in the, you know, in the chair, so to speak, for a few hours, uh, which, you know, I like to kind of even if it's a shorter interview, I just like to give people a lot of time to sort of, uh, work through some things. And, and I'm really glad that we did because it wasn't really until she began to kind of really examine herself in that interview, uh, when she maybe started getting a little tired, uh, that she realized how angry she still was about what happened to her in that situation of of not receiving justice. I mean, she even said, I, I didn't realize how angry I still was about it. Um, You know, and for me as a director, I'm always trying to elicit moments of honesty like that from people. And so, you know, while it was difficult emotionally for her to deal with that moment, um, it's kind of the whole point while we were there talking with her about it. And it was, I think it was really cathartic for her as well uh, because she's done ducks in the past and she's spoken about it a lot in the past, but I think um, she viewed this as as sort of a final say. And, And so it was really interesting to not, for her to to be in this situation where the guy admitted it, but he's not being punished for it. And it's something that she, she has to deal with all the time. And it's something that she's had to make a concerted effort to get
2: over. After something happens like that, I came to realise that I couldn't let it affect my life. I don't want to be living a life hating people or... I I want to live my life and, you know, do nice things, think about nice things. And because at the end of the day, they're not worth it. The Yorkshire is definitely not worth it, no. No.
1: To what extent did the cops you spoke to, you think, feel regret or were at least circumspect about the failure of this investigation kind of over and over again?
0: You know, many of the central police officers at that time have, have passed away. And so, you know, they weren't around to, to be heard, to kind of speak. And actually, before um, The Ripper was even released, we lost three, uh, three contributors, mm-hmm. uh, two police officers and the forensic pathologist, Mike Green. Wow. It's quite um, an old story. And, and that in itself was a very difficult aspect as a filmmaker to tell the story. And I think some of them definitely did carry a feeling of guilt or what could I have done more? Had we been able to interview George Oldfield, that would have been a much different interview. And I think he probably would have expressed a lot of regret. Hmm. So, um, yeah, I know Andy Lapp too. I, I know he struggled with regret for a very long time. A lot of his fellow officers felt that he was responsible, that he should have, you know, he's he's the one that went to his boss and said, you know, I, he's the one who interviewed Peter Sutcliffe. Uh, a lot of people felt that he should have pushed this. You know, he should have pushed it more. He should have went over his boss's head. Mm. But I think it's it's all well and good to say that now. You know, looking back. But I think then it was just a different time. I think there was this hierarchy. I don't. I, I can't remember if it made it into the series, but he said we treated these men like gods. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. there was no way I was going to go over his head. Uh, if, if he said no, then I must be wrong. Right. And so I know he carried a lot of guilt. It took him a long time to get over. And he actually met with Tracy and, you know, asked for her forgiveness for whatever responsibility he felt she, he felt she maybe felt that he had. And, you know, she was, again, Tracy's so cool. She was like, yeah, that's cool. Well, don't worry about it. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? But uh, no, I think, how can you not, I, how, you know, how can, if you're a part of this and you made those decisions, you know, how how can you not feel some sense of responsibility.
1: So your film is now on Netflix where there are a lot of true crime offerings and obviously true crime is a huge genre right now that millions oh, of yeah. people are super interested in. Your film though takes a very different approach. So I'm wondering what you're hoping viewers will take away from The Ripper.
0: I'd really like them to come away from it thinking about the women you know, who were murdered and the people they left behind. And I think... You know, all too often the focus is on the killer, and it's on, uh, you know, these insane things that they did, and and a lot of times I think it even revels uh, in in the horror. Uh, I think true crime is it's there is a very fine line between entertainment and actually having something to say, mm. and I think people will come away. I'm hoping people come away with this knowing that we had something to say, and what we had to say was very powerful. And that next time, maybe if you watch something about a serial killer, think about perhaps, uh, you know, about the people who were affected by them directly. Hopefully people can see that there's real merit in in doing that and real merit in telling stories about something else that happened to involve serial killing.
1: Hmm. Well, I think you achieved that in The Ripper. Jesse Vile, thanks so much for talking to me about it. Thanks so much. Now, here's my interview with series co director Elena Wood. Elena, I would so love to hear about your background as a documentarian and how you ended up making this sweeping true crime
2: story. Well, I went to university to study broadcasting. And I guess I was interested in doing that because I've always been fascinated by people and their stories. My family always used to say that I'm a particularly nosy person. <laughs> when I was young, um, I always used to get told off by my dad and my sister because we would go out places and I would just sit and stare at people all the time. <laughs> I guess sort of intrigued by people and trying to figure them out all the time. Um, so it sort of made sense to me that I would go into a line of work where I could connect with people and listen to their stories. Um and then I finished university and I started, I started at the bottom. I started as a runner. You know, you're literally running around for people, buying things for the production, making cups of tea, buying lunch. And I worked my way up. So I started as a runner and then I became an assistant producer. And eventually I directed my first film, which was about 10 years ago now. How did I get involved in Ripper? Well, I've received a phone call, um, as you do when you're a free, freelance director. People phone you up. So when I heard they they were making a documentary series about the Ripper, the Yorkshire Ripper, I was instantly intrigued because I sort of grew up with the stories about him. Um, I think it affected this country so much and the people who lived in Yorkshire in particular. But the whole of the UK, he was the most infamous serial killer we'd ever had. And so when I heard that they were making a series about him, I thought, right, well, that's interesting. But what's your take on it? That was my first question, right? Because you don't... I honestly have no interest, never have done, in making sensational programmes about murderers. You know, and there are many of them, let's be honest. Yeah. So they sent me a pitch, a proposal. And as soon as I read about the sort of feminist perspective, the Reclaim the Night Marches, the victims and sort of the potential to hear about their perspectives, I thought, no, this is a real chance. It could be something quite different. And... And I always just want to find the thing that's never been said before when I make something and break down the stereotype. So I thought, yeah, yeah, I really want want to do this. Now, when you first started going through all
1: the archival material that you used for this documentary, and I know there's a ton of it and we only saw some of it in the final product, were you surprised by the scope of the investigation, the amount of those index cards that there were, the amount of police
2: that worked on this, just the sheer size of it? yeah i think everyone on the production was really shocked because i think i think everyone in this particularly in this country because obviously it's a british story everyone sort of feels they know the story about the yorkshire ripper but i think most people don't know even sort of 10% of it really and it was the same for us when we started digging into it um you know we were reading books that were like sort of 500 600 700 pages long we were as you said we were watching all this archive which was sort of endless I think we were blown away by the sheer scale of it. And the sheer scale of it made it incredibly difficult to sort of structure as a series because constantly we were thinking we're not going to have time to tell the story. We can't tell all of this story. What are we going to keep in, what we're we going to keep out? Um yeah, the sheer scale of it was was quite mind-blowing. And I think that's what viewers are sort of interested in as well, from what I've gathered from what people have said to me, was that they can't believe how long it went on for, how many police were involved, how much paperwork was involved how they didn't really get very far considering all those things that's right it was pretty surprising what a big failure it was in
1: addition to being a big investigation that that connective tissue between all of those cards between all of those interviews just kept getting interrupted by the biases of the investigators and their assuming facts that were not in evidence that really surprised me Did that surprise you too that the level of failure that they were able to achieve
2: yeah it's pretty shocking isn't it i think when you i think in episode 4 when everything's sort of laid out all the mistakes are sort of laid out very clearly it is it's quite mind blowing and you know some people have asked me could this happen today could we have another yorkshire ripper today and you know on many levels my answer would be well no because we have dna today don't we and we have computer technology and had those investigators had those things back in in the 70s and 80s He would have been caught much quicker. However, if we're just talking about the judgments about women and the judgments about victims and not listening to victims, I mean, I think that still happens today. So I think sort of on a technical level, I don't think a murderer could get away with murdering people for five years anymore, because there is just so much science that would not enable that. But on another level, in terms of how we think about women, how we think about status, how we think about poverty, how we judge single mothers, I think that still happens to a certain extent. I think it does as well. And that's what's so interesting about your take
1: on this case, is that really a character in the film is sexism and misogyny. And that is the backdrop for not just the murders, but also the investigation. Can you talk about why it was so important to you that you spend
2: so much time in the film with that topic? Yeah, because I think it was at the heart of the investigation. It was one of the major failures, and and these people were wronged by those judgments. One of the amazing journalists in the series, Joan Smith, she says in, in episode three, which is one of the films that I directed how is it that there are women being murdered that all of the victims are female and yet we don't have a single woman investigator or, you know, no one involved in the investigation is female. And I think what you had was a bunch of working class Northern men who were all, all white, all from similar backgrounds, all reinforcing each other's ideas of, of who the killer was, of who the victims were. Um, And I, and so we were really passionate about spelling that out really, really clearly. And I think, From the moment Jesse and I decided to make the series, we knew we didn't want it to be about Peter Sutcliffe. We wanted it to be about, look, the question we were really asking was, how did a killer manage to get away with murdering women for five years? How is that possible? That is the question the series is addressing. And at the heart of that is misogyny and sexism. Yes, the technology wasn't there and they didn't have DNA and they didn't have computers, but I think we can all gather if once we've watched it, had they listened to those women who were attacked by him before William McCann was murdered, who knows when he would have been caught? So at the heart of it, the main, main, main failure of this investigation was, was due to sexism and misogyny, and I was determined to expose it.
1: I just keep thinking about how the police,
2: in a lot of ways,
1: villainized the victims or, you know, sort of made them other. I'm thinking in particular of the story of Maureen Long, the survivor, who went with one of the constables undercover to a pub with the hope of spotting the killer. And he was so adamant about emphasizing that he didn't want people to think they were a couple. That really struck me.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the the truth is, is that I think a lot of the detectives and the men that grew up in the 70s and 80s and were involved in this investigation, I don't think their way of thinking has shifted. It is really shocking. And they did other them. And I think the special notice, which comes up in episode three, where the police write a report that profiles all of the victims, some of the things that were said in that report, I mean, some of them we don't even have in the film, but they were really outrageous. You know, she had a Jamaican boyfriend. She was of loose moral value. She would go to the pub on her own. And what really struck me was that whether these things were or were not true, and I think the majority of them weren't true, the the killer would not have known any of it. So it was irrelevant to the investigation and the way in which they make all of these judgments about the working. There's also a class issue here, right? In, in England, we're really great yes. at, at class and making judgments about class, <laughs> as you all know, probably as Americans. Um, that in the special notice, all of the really derogatory comments are about the working class women. And only the working class women are presumed to be prostitutes. All of the middle class women are called sort of innocent or they're, they're just their reports about them are very factual. They're not making judgments about their lifestyle or where they're going or what they're doing. So that's a huge thing. And it's a huge thing still in the UK class. But I think particularly in the 70s, particularly up north, it was a huge thing. If you're poor, if you're a woman and you're working class, well, you're good good enough as a prostitute, aren't you, really? Especially if you're a single mother. And that's the other thing that came up is the judgments about single mothers, you know, not, not to help them, not to think, to feel sorry for them, but to judge them and say that they were bad mothers.
1: You know, that actually also happens here in the U.S. in terms of sort of the class conversation that law enforcement uses when they're investigating a case. I mean, the expression we hear here all the time is, quote, from a good family, yeah. which is code for white, yeah. um, has enough money that it's, you know, a, a person you should care about, not somebody that you, by implication, shouldn't care about. I still find that shocking today. I don't think that has changed much, no, it hasn't. which was why. Yeah. This is why when I was surprised when Sutcliffe died last year that the chief constable of the West Yorkshire police issued a statement where he apologized to the victims and their families for, quote, the language, tone and terminology
2: used by investigators at that time. Were you surprised to hear that? What did you think about that? Well, it's outrageous it took that long. Outrageous and it still happens, like you say, and so it sort of feels quite empty, to be honest with you. Um, when, it, and when an apology is made that far down the line, what do, what does it mean to anyone? The damage is done. You know, the thing that's really, really awful about the fact that some of these women were called prostitutes when they were not, um, I mean, nowadays we don't use that term, do we We say sex workers? So when I use the term prostitute, I'm literally using it because that's the term that was used then, not because I call women who are sex workers prostitutes. But the fact that that some of these women were branded as prostitutes that that ruined lives, that ruined families' lives. Once that was in the press and people thought that woman was a prostitute, it could never be undone. You know, it, it damaged people's lives forever and untruth damaged people's lives forever. And that's part of the reason that I, I really wanted to make this series was to try and undo some of that damage or to set the record straight. Wilma McCann was not a prostitute and Irene Richardson was not a prostitute. And when everyone in this country talks about the Yorkshire Ripper, oh, he's the killer that murdered prostitutes. That's still what people thought before this series came out. I hope it's changed some people's minds about that. But that was the presumption. And as you know, so many of the women did not sell sex. Right. But it shouldn't matter, even if they did. It, should, it shouldn't It should matter. The hierarchy of victimhood. And and and. so what I was trying to say was that that still happens here. And there was a case right. in the 2000s. It was called the Ipswich Murders. And Ipswich is a small town in England. And there were a number of sex workers that were murdered by somebody. And the language was similar, right? They were making judgments about these women, that they somehow didn't matter as much, or that they were of low moral value. And we all know when a woman who is like a what an, an Oxford graduate, middle-white, middle-class woman, if she's murdered, well, that's front-page news, isn't it? That's everywhere, and we're all rushing to find out who's done it. When a woman who has no friends, no relatives, is a single mother in some very poor part of town is murdered, does that even get in the news? Uh, so I think we have such a long way to go in terms of these issues, and I really hope that the series makes people think about that a little bit, because I think we can get complacent. I think we can think you know, post Me Too uh, or the feminist sort of new feminist movement that we're all really woke and that things have really changed. And and, and I really don't think that they have in so many ways.
1: I have a question that uh, probably will be of more interest to people listening to this who are in the United States or other countries besides England. Can you just talk a little bit about the regional aspect of this story about Yorkshire, about what it means to be up north as opposed to down south in England. And I have one very specific question for you, which is that we hear over and over again that the police believed the Ripper had this Geordie accent. And I don't think a lot of people know exactly
2: what that means. So can you just talk about all that a little bit? Well, that's really tricky. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So in England, there's a real north-south divide, there's the north of England, which has been poorer than the South. And, and that sort of explained partly in the documentary that what happened was in the North became very, very wealthy through the Industrial Revolution. It's where most of the manufacturing happened. And when the 70s came and that stopped because of sort of imports, um, lots and lots and lots of people lost their jobs. A lot of people sort of were living in poverty, were unemployed for a long time. And in the south, we have London, which is obviously the capital, uh, the, the city, lots of money, lots of banking. So there's always been this sort of slight friction between those that live in the North and those that live in the South. I mean, sometimes it can be funny, like, oh, you're a Northerner or you're a Southerner and people will take the sort of mickey out of each other and it can be quite jovial. But I think there is a real divide in, in many ways and that still exists. So the Geordie accent, it is, it, We we in the edit, we did go around the houses thinking, how do we explain, how do we explain? Because <laughs> it's confusing. Some people call it a Newcastle accent. Some people call it a Geordie accent. Okay, so basically... When you're from Newcastle, which is very far north, it's much further north than Yorkshire, it's called a Geordie accent. That's what people call a Newcastle accent. And it's a very particular kind of accent that's quite different from a Yorkshire accent. So if you're British, you are going to know the difference between a Yorkshire accent and a Geordie accent, which is an accent that comes from Newcastle. They sound very different to a British person. I'm not sure if an American could decipher the difference. I'm really curious about not just the themes of misogyny,
1: but also the themes of feminism that you put right up front in your episodes of this documentary. There is this through line that I think you're drawing that, you know, Joan Smith sort of helps you underline that the way that the police talked about these killings created such chaos and terror that it kind of caused women to really
2: start a mini movement that was really connected to feminism. Can you talk about that? Yeah. I mean, it's really fascinating. And that's the perfect example of something that I had absolutely no idea about before I started the project. And so it's sort of like I'm uncovering this bit of unknown history. Um, so I was always really intrigued by the Reclaim the Night movement. I think, I think what you realize when, well, what I realized when I was doing the research and, and meeting people was that it tapped into I think an anger that, that women were not in touch with about how men treated them during that time. There was a huge amount of domestic violence in the UK in the 70s. Uh, police would not really prosecute; they turn a blind die. You know, oh, it's a domestic. They would say, and they would sort of leave if it was reported. So there was a lot, a lot of women that were suffering from domestic violence at home. A lot of women that were experienced sexism in work in the workplace so I think women had a lot of women had just been tolerating it like it was the norm right this is just how it is maybe not even thinking about it maybe not even questioning it and then suddenly Peter Sutcliffe comes along this murderer comes along and he's killing women and I think the sheer terror women felt first of all got to them and then I think this idea that 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 women had to stay in and lock themselves in rather than the men, when it was a man that was killing women. I think it just pushed a lot of women over the edge, honestly. And also, the feminist Julie Bindle talks a lot about this, actually. It's not necessarily in the film, but it's a little bit like this lockdown that we're experiencing now. The danger of telling a lot of women to stay in was that it was more dangerous at home than it was outside because a lot of women were being killed through domestic violence or severely injured through domestic violence. And so during that time when women were told, don't come out, stay indoors, well, they were terrified to stay indoors. Because their husband might be beating them up or their boyfriend might be beating them up. And so you suddenly had all these women that started calling up, reporting their partners, yeah, their boyfriends, their husbands. What does that tell you? What that tells you is that these women have experienced some behavior from their partner, from their husband, that made them believe their partner might be capable of murdering women. Isn't that terrifying? I just found that absolutely terrifying. And so what happens is, you know, these feminist voices are fighting this fight anyway. They're they're on, you know, the 70s was quite big for feminism in the UK. And these voices start building, putting things in paper, speaking on the news and and organising these marches. And I think it started quite gradually. And then by the main Reclaim the Night march, which you see in episode three, women were furious. They had had enough. They were terrified. They were being told not to go out a man was going around murdering them but more importantly they were realizing that men were violent against women all the time they spoke badly about women all the time and I think it was enough is enough we're going to hit the streets and we're going to fight back and it it's one of the positive things to come out of a really really tragic period in British history I think um it it changed the way a lot of women felt and, and thought about men You really have
1: made this a very victim-centric documentary, which I know I appreciated and probably a lot of viewers appreciated. A lot of documentaries about killers, when they feature victims, it's almost like, for lack of a better phrase, like
2: grief porn. Like they're just there to cry, to be sad, to sort of— Or they're an aside. Yeah. Even worse, they're like an aside. It's like, oh, we kind of have to put a photo up, but we're not going to tell you anything about them. Exactly.
1: And you, you captured some really wonderful moments. Um, I'm thinking of Richard McCann, Wilma's son. She was the single mother of four that you were talking about earlier. He sort of talked about, right in the aftermath of his mother's murder, that all he remembers was feeling you know, warmth and comfort from people. You have the father of Barbara Leach. When Barbara died, my wife bought her uh, something new uh, up to the funeral. And it was rather expensive, and I raised my eyebrows for price, but... As she said, then it's not—it's not just for Barbara's funeral. I'm, 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 the last we're wearing this is for her, her graduation and her wedding and the and the, and the birth of her her, her, her babies. That's, that's what's been been t- taken from from our future these are small moments that say so much is, was that the approach
2: you were trying to take? hundred percent. I mean, I wish we could have had more family members involved and I mean, a lot of them were very hard to track down. I wish we could have had more archive that was like Barbara Leach's parents because what, what those moments do is they remind you we're talking about a human being here. We're talking about a woman who had a life, who had a future. And I think That's what Richard does with Wilma is he reminds you that this woman was a mother to four children and she had a difficult life and she was trying her best. And and that's why I think it's so interesting how it's juxtaposed against the journalist talking about the view of reading about a prostitute being murdered. You know, and then you hear Richard talking about how his mother struggled and had a really hard life and had suffered from domestic violence. Those things just make you realise as a viewer that when we're making these programmes and we're talking about these murders, there is someone who has died here that had a whole life that was taken away from them. Elena,
1: there are so many big themes here. Obviously, the culture of the 70s, misogyny, feminism, the sort of bungling attempts of this over taxed police force who were full of implicit bias, but this is now on Netflix, this big, grand, sweeping story that you've told about a case that, a story that's been told again and again, but yours is very different. What are you hoping people will take away from your story about The Ripper?
2: The biggest thing I hope for is that it makes people think about how we think about women, talk about women, treat victims I I hope it makes people think about how much hasn't changed and how far we have to go. And then I also really hope that we sort of forget about Peter Sutcliffe. He's inconsequential. I don't care about the man. I never have done. That we we remember these women, that we remember that they had lives, that they had futures, that their families' lives were ruined by what this man did. Um, And that we don't go around calling the survivors victims because they are they are survivors. They want to be called survivors and that they have lived to tell the tale and they're getting on with their lives. He's dead now. Let's forget about him. Let's focus on the women that lost their lives, their families that lost loved ones. Mm -hmm. And let's really think about why that investigation went wrong in terms of the judgments and treatment of women. And let's try and think about how we can change that.
1: Well, that's what I took away from it. I have to tell you, Eleanor Wood, I really enjoyed The Ripper. Thank you so much for talking with me about it.
2: Thank you so much, Rebecca.
1: It's lovely to meet you. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to directors Eleanor Wood and Jesse Vile. For more of my takes on true crime and how we cover it in the media, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down true crime documentaries, podcasts, and the latest in pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please subscribe to rate and review this show and share it with friends. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for our next episode on Crime Scene, The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel. You can't make this up is a production of Netflix. Our music is by Hansdale Sue and our producer is Shayna Deloria. I'm Rebecca Lavoy. Thanks so much for listening.